0: Good morning. And as he said, this is from Matthew 5, 9 through 16. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people um, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the Lord of the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Vicky. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you, Lord, that it meets us precisely where we are. I pray, Lord, that your word would be clear to your people for their encouragement and building up in in love and grace. I pray that you would confront those who need to be confronted, that you would encourage those who are downtrodden, that you would build up those who are weak and fill them with your love and your strength. I pray that you would teach us your word. And that your gospel would be clear to your people despite my own inadequacies and imperfections. I love you and praise you, Lord, for you are a God of grace and mercy. Give grace to your people this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you knew this, but there is a substantial portion of U.S. law that follows you when you leave the country. Um, Not everything, but a significant part. No matter where you go, you're an American and you need to behave like one. If you're a citizen, if you're a citizen of another country, that's your business. I I, I don't know what their laws are like. But you need to behave like one. But you know, you also have rights overseas where there is a U.S. consulate or embassy. um, The ability to seek protection and safety. But as soon as you walk onto the grounds of an embassy, you actually enter the territory of that country and are subject to their laws. It's kind of fun going into D.C. if you visit an embassy. You can visit all sorts of different countries um, all in an afternoon. I got to do that once on a tour, the Finnish embassy. I've never been to Finland, but I, I did technically go to Finland when I visited their embassy. Um, in case you didn't know, I'm half Finnish, even though I don't look at it look like it at all. I just look at my mom and you'll be able to see it's true. Um, anyway, if you're a U.S. citizen living abroad, you have a set of limitations and privileges that follow you wherever you go. You know, last week we began a journey through one of the most beautiful but challenging sections of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. I've called this series Citizens of the Kingdom precisely because Jesus characterizes his own teaching as proclaiming the kingdom of God. Uh, Before our passage for today and before the sermon, back in in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' preaching is summed up with this one statement. Repent, turn around, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a curious phrase. But the Sermon on the Mount is really an explanation of this single statement. It, It dives into the sentence and blows it wide open for all to see. In it, he's telling his followers that they are just like citizens of a nation who are living abroad in the world. But not merely citizens. Ambassadors. Representatives. As representatives of God's kingdom in the nations of this world, whether it's America or or another nation that you might be a citizen of, in the places where we live, we are called to live differently. Differently. And we have a set of privileges and responsibilities that are, well, privileges that are beyond anything our host countries can offer. Our passage today is a well-known saying from this Sermon on the Mount, uh, but we can't take this statement in isolation. We have to see it in the context of the whole, the context of the message of God's kingdom. It specifically has to be read in relation to the Beatitudes that we talked about last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, etc. If these things are a description of the values of God's kingdom, the images in our passage today, images of salt and light, they're about what it looks like to live out those values in relation to the world around us. They're about what it looks like to have what we believe, our kingdom citizenship, have it shape how we live in an unbelieving world. The Beatitudes aren't just nice ideas or an ideal, they describe the core of the Christian life and the most essential element for our witness in the world. As we look at the images of salt and light, what I want you to hear and see and receive is an invitation from Jesus to stay salty and shine bright as we showcase the love and peace of God's kingdom through our contrast with the world. Stay salty and shine bright. We'll first look at the images of salt and light and then see how this shapes our relationship with the world. In verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You know, in our culture, we've adopted this metaphor to refer to someone who's humble, who's moral, who's hardworking. But you know, there's a problem with that. Our difficulty is that we can think of salt a little bit differently than those in Jesus' time. The way we think about salt is not actually the way um, God's people in in Jesus' day thought about it. Um, And as a result, we can make the mistake of reading our culture back into Scripture Uh, When we think of salt, we chiefly think of it in two ways. Um, First, we think of salt as a flavor enhancer. That's great, yeah, you add salt and it brings out the natural flavors of of whatever you're eating. Or, um, you think of it as the culprit behind hypertension and high blood uh, pressure. (laughs) Um, So either you love salt or you love it too much. Um, And now you need to have less of it. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm half Indian. Uh, I've mentioned I was half Finnish, half Indian. That that wasn't planned, by the way. It just kind of happens that way. Um, And gratefully, I don't have to deal yet with hypertension or high blood pressure. Hopefully, it's not out there waiting for me down the line. Um, But as a result of that, I primarily think of salt as a flavor enhancer, bringing out all of those wonderful different Indian spices in my lamb Rogan Josh, my butter chicken, my biryani, or lamb vindaloo. It's delectable. Anyone else mouth-watering? Mine is right now. It's mouth-watering and delectable when the right amount of salt is added. But if you don't add any salt, you just get the heat. You miss the flavor. It's from this understanding of seeing salt as a flavor enhancer that some see Jesus here making a statement about us, that, that you are the salt of the earth. It says that we are to be a positive moral influence in the world. In other words, we enhance the good around us. In this view, our mission from Jesus is to restrain evil and generally make the world more godly. Now, that's not a bad thing at all. Um, It's wonderful when God gives us the ability to do that, and we should do that in our communities. But it's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not about mere moral influence in the world. In Jesus' day, in the Old Testament, there were a few different uses for salt that we don't think about today, and it's those uses that are likely in view. All of them have to do with salt functioning as a preservative in sacrifices and ceremonies. Salt functioning as a preservative. Maybe if you've gone hunting and you've killed a deer and you've had to make venison, maybe you've, you've preserved it with salt. That's, that's a more applicable image. Um, but the primary, the primary way it's talked about as a preservative is in relation to God's covenant relationship with his people. It's called in several places in the Old Testament a covenant of salt. I don't know if you know that or have seen that in your Old Testament reading. Or maybe you read it and you just glossed over it and said, that's weird, and moved on. Um, in the sacrificial offerings God called his Old Testament people to make, they were always to add salt Leviticus 2.13, which describes one of the offerings, it says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. The same was true of the animals they were to sacrifice. When they divided up the meat, they were to salt it before offering it at the temple. It sounds really strange. Why in the world are they doing this? This seems arcane and weird, and I don't know why. But, you know, salt ensured the sacrifice was pure. And it preserved the offering, making it last. And that was a sign, a ceremonial sign of the permanence of their covenant with God. You see, the covenant was lasting, just like the meat would last when salted. Salt was also present in the ancient Near East in human agreements. Human covenant-making ceremonies, when an agreement was made between people who were formally in conflict, they would sit down at a table and they would eat bread and eat salt, just like salt, straight up. Um, in fact, to come to such an agreement that way was known as partaking of each other's salt. In this situation, salt was a symbol of the participants committing to preserving a permanent peace with one another. You know, a covenant of salt, a covenant of permanent peace. Because it functioned as a preservative, salt became a covenantal symbol of permanence and a commitment to preserving peace. You know, Jesus echoes the same idea in this little idiom that he uses in talking uh, to his disciples in the Gospel of Mark. There had been some dissension and disunity and infighting among them. Um, After speaking with them about this, he said, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You can hear it there, can't you? It was a common saying which meant that they should commit to peace and resist ungodly anger in their relationships. Now, Jesus' disciples, who he's giving this Sermon on the Mount to, they would have had all of this in the forefront of their minds when they heard Jesus offer this metaphor. After all, life at that time in Israel was saturated with sacrifice and ceremony. Um, it said that there was always blood flowing in the temple. There were offerings of grain, offerings of meat consistently. We don't have that context, but they did. Um, you know, temple sacrifice, it was a big part of their lives. So what this meant for them, though, was that Jesus was inviting them to share God's mission of extending his covenant of peace, his salvation to others. For them to be the salt of the world was to be the thing that brought God's peace to the world. As citizens of God's kingdom living abroad in the world, they were to be the salt that brought peace with God to those in animosity to him. Those who were far off from him. And they were to do it through living like Christ and sharing his good news. That was their mission. That was their mission to extend covenantal relationship with God. And the world needed it. The leaders of God's people, Israel, if you read the New Testament, the Gospels, you find that they were unfaithful. They were supposed to be God's shepherds, but they were doing anything but. They were abusing the law. They were excluding foreigners from temple worship. They were avoiding care for the weak and oppressed. They actually twisted God's law at places to help the rich and harm the weak and the poor. The land was like a meal without salt. Devoid of the signs of God's covenant relationship. But Jesus also gave a warning. In order to carry the gospel of peace. In order to be the preservative of people by extending covenant relationship with God. Jesus' followers needed to remain as pure salt. They had to remain salty themselves. To remain pure and faithful to the pattern of life that God had called them to. Jesus said to them, but if salt loses its saltiness, I'm paraphrasing here, what, what's its good, what, what is it good for except to be thrown away? Now, if you know anything about chemistry, um, my dad was a biology professor, a, a science teacher, so I had to learn about this stuff. Um, you know that salt can't go bad. Salt, when sitting on the shelf, doesn't spoil. It's not organic. It's an inorganic chemical compound. NaCl, sodium chloride, and it stays sodium chloride unless one of two things happens. It's involved in a chemical reaction that changes it into another compound or it's adulterated by something else. In other words, the salt is displaced by something that isn't salt. And so it's not salt anymore. In your little jar of salt, if you add a bunch of sand... Now it's sandy salt, and so it's not the, not the same thing. And if you add that to your lamb, Rogan, Josh, it's going to taste really weird and grainy. Don't, don't do that. No, salt can't go bad. And, but I, I think the latter um, example is in view, that salt is adulterated or it's uh, polluted with other things. If the values of this world, its trust in riches, its false security, its pursuit of wealth and prosperity at all costs its praise of only the powerful and its despising of the weak, if those things take root in the Christian life, if the ways and patterns of of a society that does not honor God take root in the Christian life, it's like salt being mixed with sand, worthless for its purpose. This means for us that our profession of faith in Christ must also be a lived faith. It must be an embodied faith, a holistic faith faith. We are invited by Jesus to do in this world what we are through faith in Christ. Holy, separate, like him. If a Christian is a Christian, he or she cannot help but stand out in a world that embraces values and a way of life that is opposed to the upside down kingdom of Jesus displayed in the Beatitudes. We are to embrace meekness Over arrogance. We are to embrace the lowly over the powerful. We are to embrace mercy over domineering and self promotion. We are to embrace and long for justice rather than self preservation. We are to embrace a willingness to suffer wrong rather than compromise our faithfulness to Christ's call to love. And you know, we're going to hear from Jesus throughout this series, presenting an ethic for life that contrasts starkly with the world on issues of sex, money, power, and more. It's surprising and it's confrontational. Christians stand out not merely by their different beliefs, but by their different lives. Lived out in the presence of those who disagree. Lives that surprise others. And invite them to experience the goodness of God's kingdom. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? If your kids or, or you were kids and were in Sunday school, you probably learned the song. He was this short little tax collector who heard Jesus preaching and he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You remember that? You know, when he met Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and spoke to him and called him to come down. It exposed his sin of cheating his neighbors. And Jesus didn't directly confront him, but it it emerged from within him. When he met Jesus, he felt cut to the core by what he had done. He had cheated his neighbors as a tax collector. What did he do? What did he do when, when confronted Did he maintain his ill-gotten wealth and merely temper his behavior saying, okay, I'm not going to cheat anymore and then go my way? Did he just receive grace and go his way forgiven? No. No. He took his ill-gotten wealth and he restored double. He doubled his restitution to those he had wronged. And he did it with joy, effusive joy likely substantially reducing his station in the world. And he did it because possessing Christ was so much more a treasure to him than riches. He stood out. And his purity, his faithfulness, it created a stark contrast with the commonplace wickedness of his profession. He was salt in the world. You know, if we were Christ Jesus' possession... The upside-down values of God's kingdom, like the ones that Zacchaeus lived out, they own us. They own us. And will increasingly be displayed in us and the source of true flourishing and joy for us. And they will contrast with the world. They'll look crazy to our neighbors. You know, there's no true faith without a growing life of faith. Just as, salty that, as, as salt that is not salty is no salt at all. We cannot have an effective witness in the world encouraging people to find peace with God through Jesus unless we ourselves display the goodness of his kingdom rule in our lives and we are conformed to Christ in the way we interact with a fallen world. Unless our way of being in relation to the people around us looks like Jesus. Our witness will have no teeth, no beauty. That brings us to the second image in this passage, light. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And then he expands on that through this picture of a a town on a hill and a lamp. All of these relate back, though, to that image of light. Now, this image is far more simple for us to understand than the image of salt, Um, light shines in the darkness. Um, It provides hope. It reveals truth. You know, that's what we're here to do in this world, to to provide hope and reveal the truth of God's grace in Christ. We spent our Christmas Eve service this year reflecting on light and how Jesus is the light of the world, the light who has come into the world to bring salvation um, to people who are far from him. One passage we read was from Isaiah 60, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. We know that Jesus is the light who has come into the world. He's your light if you have trusted him by faith. He's the one who is a great treasure to you, who revealed your sin, but also revealed his grace by going to the cross in your place to die for your sin and give you new life. But you know, in coming to Him, in coming to His light, you also got a mission. You were also changed. And your mission is to reflect and bear His light in the world. What an incredible privilege. You know, there are sometimes you might see this as a burden or an obligation uh, when it's hard to share your faith. But what a privilege it is that we get the job of displaying the light and beauty of his kingdom to the world. He's again inviting us to join his mission of spreading the good news of peace with God to those who are far off. But notice how they are to do it. How they are to be light. It's not merely a matter of proclaiming truth. So much as it is embodying truth. You know, some pastors preach on this passage and they say, you know what? Uh, being a city on a hill, being a town on a hill is all about proclaiming truth. And we proclaim truth here, so we are shining bright. That's not what this passage says. No, he compares them to a city on a hill and to a lamp. In the days before electricity, light at night came only by torches and candles. And you could see the depth of the darkness If you were out in the country at night looking around, the city would be obvious. It would stand out like a beacon with those torches, and that light would invite you to come in. It was inviting. The image of a lamp takes this a step further, for it says that the very purpose of light is to be seen, not hidden or covered up. To shine in the darkness, it has to enter the darkness, it has to be present in it but how do we share this light it's through love never mere proclamation look at Jesus explanation in verse 16 he says in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven Jesus connects the light we are to shine with the good deeds he has called us to embrace and live. To live in light of the beatitudes. Embracing lowliness, longing, and love. You know, we in the Protestant church have a tricky relationship with good works, don't we? There's some places, and sometimes we can, we can emphasize so much that they're not the things that save us or make us right with God, that we unbiblically diminish the value of the faithful Christian life, of the call to obedience, the call to display good news by the way we live. It's why so many interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount explain it away rather than embracing its hard teaching, its hard message and call to be a faithful follower of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, light is not light unless it is seen. And salt is not salt unless it is pure and acts to preserve what it touches. The Christian life is meant to display a compelling contrast with the world by the way it reflects the lowliness and self giving love of Christ Jesus. And this is to invade every element of our lives. It's to invade the way you think about this world, the way you talk about politics with your friends, your family, your kids, your neighbors. You are to be saturated with meekness and humility. I don't care how much you believe something to be right and true. You are to be like Christ. And you will find joy in being like Christ. Every moment we have an opportunity to display the goodness and love of his kingdom. Every, opportu- every day we have a chance to display the gospel by the way we love our neighbors. We are to display a compelling contrast and not engage in the dissensions and divisions in this world the way the world does, no matter how strongly we feel about them. The Christian life is meant to display a compelling contrast. The church is not the church unless it both proclaims and embodies the gospel by love and mercy within these walls and without. We are only a shining town on a hill if we proclaim the truth and kneel down to wash our lowly neighbors and our enemies' feet, their messy feet, even as Jesus has washed ours. You know, the most important element of our witness according to Jesus is whether our lives in the world are conformed to his. Whether our lives in the world with our neighbors look like his life in relation to us, and our sin. Do we have a life that invites others to come to the light that we bear? Or do we build walls of protection that separate us? When the world looks at us, does it see something different in the way we love? Does it see that we have committed to peace with one another across difference and serve sacrificially? Or does it merely see a reflection of itself and its own values? With a different spin. Being salt and light in the world is not primarily, in this passage, a matter of proclaiming good news like a messenger. It is a matter of embodying good news like an ambassador. An ambassador, by his or her conduct, values, and life, embodies the rule of the kingdom he or she represents and is a citizen of, no matter what the values and laws of the kingdom in which he lives are. Through knowing an ambassador, you come to know the king and what he's like as people know you do they get to know jesus do they get to see what he's like you know i love this church because you are a church that loves to embody the gospel in service but i think we all need to answer ourselves or ask ourselves that question when people on the outside encounter us do they see what the king is like or do they see a reflection of themselves oh my how i want us as a church to continue to grow in being an ambassadors in the middle of a year that is probably going to be more contentious than any one that's come in recent memory will we be salt and light before we care about the divisions in this world. Will we be salt and light? Proclaiming a gospel of peace is more important than the divisions that are separating people in our culture. Will we be salt and light? Will people see Jesus even if they disagree with us? Let them see, let them see us in our character. Let let, let them see him in our character, our kindness, and our love so much that they might be compelled to acknowledge his truth. You know, I haven't met many people in my life who have been argued into the kingdom of God. I don't know about you. I haven't met many people who were primarily persuaded by good arguments or confrontational um, mic drop moments where you just sort of drop a truth bomb on them and move on. I haven't met many people who came to faith um, through debate, but I have met plenty of people who came to know Jesus through terrible arguments or no arguments at all. Because, sorry, but because that appeal to know Jesus and truth in him came from Christians who were salty who were Christ-like in humility, love, and mercy and didn't hide their light because they were unafraid to be lowly and dive into the mess of a stranger's life and bring self-sacrificial mercy in the name of Christ Jesus. It is by far the most convincing apologetic and a far more valuable one than all those tomes of apologetics books you might read. The life of Christ lived in his people is more vital than all of that. You know, one time I had the opportunity to lead someone to Christ at our old church. And I may have shared this years ago. I got to go on a walk around a lake in Columbia with this person who was from a Buddhist background. Um, And I got to answer her questions about Jesus and salvation. You know, I had lots of good arguments and illustrations. But as I've reflected on that, those had nothing to do with convincing her. She wanted to talk. Because she already wanted to believe in Jesus. She already had decided. She just hadn't fully understood why. She had seen him for months in our church ESL ministry. In the way her grandmother was sacrificially cared for free by the church. And the way my wife, who ran the table, talked with her. And encouraged her as she sat there with her young child waiting for her grandmother in class. The way she engaged and cared and served sacrificially and met needs when they came up with a little one. She could not understand how people would love and care for them so much. She had a lot of different opinions and different thoughts about life and the world than we did. But we didn't really care about that. That wasn't important. Those debates weren't significant. All I did in that moment was help her understand what she had already believed to be true because she saw Jesus in the love and care of his people. It's when people see our good works that they will glorify God. So much more important to our witness in the world than good arguments is the apologetic of a public Christ-conformed life, lived boldly in the face of those who disagree. Our passage at the beginning, in the part that I'm not talking about as much, says that some will respond with animosity and rejection. That's okay, because some will see your good works and glorify God. It makes it all worth it. But if you hide your light, if your salt is adulterated with pollution of this world, people will not be confronted with the opportunity to either glorify God or reject him. Let your life display him unabashedly. And trust God to work in people's hearts. You know, church, there's so much more I could say about this, so much more I want you to hear Like I said, our scripture today at the beginning says that some people, when they see Jesus in us, will reject him and therefore reject us. Being like Jesus, it bears a cost, but that cost is eminently worth bearing as we seek by his spirit and his strength through prayer to faithfully follow Jesus in lowliness and love. As we do that, we will be pure salt and bright light to a world that needs it. There is nothing more important for his church to be than that. Let's embrace it as he has embraced us. Amen. Father God, I praise you and I thank you that you are our light. And that, Lord, you have defined for us the way of living in this world that is most compelling to a world in need and most flourishing for us. Help us, Lord, in a world of controversies and dissensions to be agents of your gospel of peace. Change us, mold us, shape us to be more like Christ, that if anything else, people would see you.